This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Big day today for some people. Over the last number of weeks, really over the last number of maybe even months, but last number of weeks especially, it's been picking up in intensity. We get these press releases sent to us commonly with each association, sports organizations, nominations, the people they've put forward to be the Olympic athletes representing Canada in Pyeongchang next month. We've had skating and skiing and hockey and all these things. You've, you've probably heard a lot of this. Well, today out came the list of those who will be representing Canada in bobsleigh. Interestingly, and I find this fascinating, this is one we have to pay attention to around here now because Hamilton, Burlington, this area has become a hotbed for this sport. In a moment, we're going to talk about why and how that is because it seems very unlikely. But on the list, right near the top, a guy who is now going to be going to his first Olympics, uh, Sir John de Brebeuf graduate, now a member of Canada's Olympic bobsleigh team from Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, Nick Poloniato. Nick, congratulations. Oh, thank you. That is unbelievable. It must have been just unbelievable today to finally hear that. Yeah, well, we've known for a little bit, but we've had to keep it quiet, and I've been super excited, and it's it's great to see the outpouring of support from everybody. Um, yeah, it's been... It's it's obviously a dream of mine to compete at the Olympics, so it's it's yeah, it's surreal. I don't I don't really have the words for it right now. How did you find out that officially you were gonna be going? Well, there's a lot of uh calculations that kinda had to take place, but we knew after our seventh World Cup, because that was when the Olympic cutoff was, um, for qualifications. So at that point after my seventh World Cup race in Switzerland um, like the coaches and everybody did the math and we had qualified three sleds for the games. Did you do the math like two or three or four times to make sure it was right? <laughs> you don't <laughs> well, want to get too I, excited and then go, oh, oops, that was a math yeah. mistake. Luckily, we, we had a, like qualified by a fair amount, so we were okay in that regard. And, and yeah, it was pretty pretty awesome, to be honest. But even though you knew, even going into that race, that you, I mean, you've been having a really good year. So you know that things are going well. You know there's a possibility. Then you get the scores or you, you, you realize that you're going to be in there. Does it still catch you off guard a little bit? Because this is something you've been chasing for a while now. Does it still catch you off guard when you actually hear that, that, geez, I'm going to the Olympics? Yeah, like it kind of set in today when it was all kind of... Um, announced by the Canadian Olympic uh, Committee and everyone was there and it was all the media and everything. That's when it was kind of hit me for real. I had a massive smile on my face <laughs> as most people probably saw. And yeah, it was, it was awesome. I've been working so hard for the last five years towards, towards this, this goal of mine and, and for it to come true, you know, it's, it's amazing. Well, if people go to your website and you do have your own website, the words on the home screen that pop up right away, giant words that say pursuing the Olympics. So it sounds like this is, I mean, you're doing the World Cup stuff. You want to be a great bobsleigh regardless, but this seems to have been focus number one for you. Yeah, well, that's what everyone competes for in our sport is to win, to be the Olympic champion. And I mean qualifying for the Olympics is, is amazing, but like I've set some other goals and I, I, you know, I really want to get to the Olympics and, and do Canada proud and, and bring home a medal for, for our country. I'm going to get to that in a second, but wh- why the Olympics? And again, you're a guy, and I want to get to this as well in a second, but you're a guy who didn't start as an Olympian or, or in an Olympic sport. You started elsewhere, but why the Olympics for a guy who's been looking for them? What is it about the Olympics that's so special? 
Well, for me, it's it's competing at the very highest level of sport. Um, you know, as a as a competitive athlete in whatever sport you do, you want to be the best. And when I look at um, the biggest sports event in the world, it's the Olympics. And you know, at, when I was growing up, I was so keen on playing football and you know making it to the pros. But obviously, I've had some some injuries in there, and and I you know I changed my focus to bobsleigh it kind of all fell into my lap it happened so quickly and then when when you get into the sport and you start to learn a little bit about it that's that's what people you know every athlete in our sport that's what they they compete for to win you know an olympic medal and and that quickly very quickly became you know my my focus so it was pretty pretty awesome today to you know reach the first step of that and and uh be heading there in, in like 11 days. So I'm and pretty excited. one of the beauties, Nick, one of the real beauties about your sport is there are some sports that are judged that a lot of people, if you have not, and I'm doing air quotes here, paid your dues, haven't been around, haven't been to an Olympics or two, probably you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt from a judge. You're probably not really in contention that you could win a medal. Uh, your sport, you show up and you have a great couple runs. You're, you're right there. You could actually do this. Yeah, 100%. Like, last year we had the test event in Korea, and I finished fourth, and I was 100th of a second out of third place. So, I mean, I, I have a really good feel for the track, and, and if I can throw down some good start times with, like, we have a bunch of beasts on our team for as push athletes, so I think we're all going to have the start, and it's just a matter of who can be consistent over four runs. They don't have to be perfect, but if you can put down four consistent runs, then, you know, you have a chance to win a medal. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Nick Poloniato, Hamilton guy named today to Canada's Olympic bobsleigh team. Uh, Nick, we have, as everyone knows, a mountain in Hamilton. We like to call it the mountain. It sounds very majestic, but it's not really like the Rockies or the Alps or something. You couldn't really learn to bobsled on Hamilton Mountain. So how do, we, how do you end up in this sport? Um, well, I was recruited through, uh, Ontario actually has a bobsleigh and skeleton association and I was recruited through them, um, for several years as I was playing football. Um, they look at like, uh, your combine scores, um, and all those kinds of things. And once I was injured and I had some, I wasn't going to play football anymore. I still had that competitive fire. So I took them up on their offer to come out to one of their combines and I did really well and kind of snowballed from there i got invited to go down to lake placid which is about six hours from uh gta area and they had a partnership with uh, americans and we went down there and i i did a bobsleigh school and tested out uh driving most people started as like a push athlete but they fired me into the, the driver's seat right away do you remember the and, first time going down the, the hill driving the, the bobsleigh oh yeah i had no idea what i was doing <laughs> It was it was pretty crazy. I was my heart was beating out of my chest, but it was one of those things that I've never felt before with that much adrenaline when you're you know, you're in control but you're you just have so much adrenaline and it's like that still to this day. Like when you get to the the line when you're about to go down the hill, it's it's still the same. You're still super pumped up and ready and I can't I can't recreate that feeling with any other sport I've done. So it's pretty, it's a pretty neat feeling. You, um, by the way, you, you mentioned football. You went to, uh, John de Bray, St. John de Bray Bluff. You went to Bishops, correct? Yeah. Played football Bishop's at Bishops. Sherbrooke, Quebec. Yeah. And then 
looking, as I understand it, were thinking or at least looking at a CFL career and had an injury, a serious leg injury. Is that right? Yeah, I, I broke my tibia um, playing football, and it kind of put, like, that was my, I went back for my fifth year um, at Bishops, and I had a really good season. I was a conference all-star, and then I was, you know, pretty sure in my mind that I would at least get into a, a CFL camp that that uh, end of that spring, and, and then I had the injury, and it kind of all got squashed, and I was in a position where I didn't really know what I was going to do, and um, I just rehabbed my leg, and going into the next uh, winter, I, I had this opportunity to try bobsleigh, and I didn't have anything else going on, so I figured, why not, you know? But what's really interesting to me about this, Nick, is that as I said off the top, we don't have a huge mountain. It's not uh, bobsleigh is not a sport you would necessarily think Hamiltonians, Burlingtonians are going to fall into, and yet we've put out a ton. And I'm only uh, the names that are on the top of my head. You, Jesse Lumsden, obviously, who was named to the team today. Uh, Tim Randall, who was at the Olympics last time. Yeah. Um, there have been. Uh, oh, there's a couple guys who were who went to Mac who were named to the team today, and I'm drawing blanks on their names. I apologize uh, to Cam them. Stones Thank you. Play rugby. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and there was one other who played uh, football at Mac, a running back as well, besides Jesse. Joey Nemeth. Thank you, Joey Nemeth. Exactly. Thank you. So yeah. we're we're putting out these large numbers, relatively speaking, of bobsleigh athletes. It's one thing to have lots of guys playing football. Lots of places have lots of guys who play football and may have strong lower bodies and an ability to push. Why are we able to create? What's a, what is it special or different about Hamilton that we're able to find this many guys that can do the sport at such a high level? I just, I just think we have so many athletes in the area that um, are just physical specimens. And when you're, when you're dealing with like, uh, the large population of the GTA, and I think there's like an like an insane amount of competition that goes on with like all the foot like the football programs growing up, and there's so many universities packed into a small area. We have such a hub of like power athletes there, mm. and I think that you know once we once we all kind of met each other, we actually did like some recruiting as well, like with uh, getting guys like Cam and all them involved. And yeah, it's just kind of growing over the past four years since I started the sport. And we've created sort of a network in the area, and it's pretty sweet. Like we have, we have a lot of new guys coming out every year, and and we're just, we're just like a little power hub of, of athletes. <laughs> well, and cool. I, one of the names I forgot, an alternate on the team is Sam Jaguer, former Hamilton Ticat as well. So, yeah. uh, there's another one. Uh, okay, uh, very quickly, because we got to move through a couple things really fast. Uh, this year earlier, now to tell people how well you've done, you have had a great season. You missed being on a podium this year because of four millimeters which is like half the width of someone's baby fingernail. Explain how you lose a spot on the podium by four millimeters. Yeah, so if I can, I'll do my best to explain this. Um, there, so you know where we sit in the sleds, how it kind of is like a, there's the part where you jump in. Yep, the opening, that, yeah. Yeah, that opening in the sled has, has to be certain measurements. And what happened was I was in a, a couple crashes early in the season in Lake Placid, um, and I crashed on the same side of my sled twice. And what happened was it kind of, you can't notice it to the naked eye, but it bent the side of the sled in four millimeters. <laughs> and when they went to measure that, cause I, when you win, usually when you are top three in a race, you get material inspection to make sure that, you know, you're not doing anything illegal or cheating or anything. Um, and they measure, usually they'll give you a warning or, you know, they'll fine you for something cause it's not. That had no bearing on how 
um, no. the result was. It wasn't like, oh, that you're cheating. No, it was like something had happened. It happened, you know, by accident, and we had no idea that it had happened. Techn- te- technicality, and it cost you a medal. Exactly. So that would well, that would have been my first first medal on the World Cup, and yeah, it was pretty it was pretty tough because I was. Uh, but what what I think it was actually for the best because the very next race at a track I'd never been to, I finished fourth and, you know, I just kept fighting and it made the fire burn stronger inside me. And I think it was actually for, for the better that it happened. Well, and now we got to run, unfortunately, Nick, but now the good news about all this is now you get to win your first medal at the Olympics, right? So that's even, so that's, it'll be even sweeter. Yeah. That's what I've been telling everybody. (laughs) I'm going to save, save my first medal for the games because that's, that's the way it's meant to be. Nick, we got to run, but congratulations. We will be watching, and I want to have you back on here before the Olympics to tell us about the lucky rock. I hear there's a, a story about a lucky stone or a lucky rock, but we can't do that now. Nick Poloniato, really appreciate the time. Good luck. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for your support. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Stunt driver on Red Hill charged. Some kid under 18 years old, we don't know, I don't think exactly how old, he's under 18 is all we know, was caught doing 157 kilometers an hour on Red Hill Creek Expressway. That's 67 kilometers over the limit. We're moving into almost double the posted speed limit. And this becomes relevant for a number of reasons, but one of them is you will recall, I think it was just last week, that there was all kinds of discussion at City Council. I know Bill Kelly talked about it at length on his show about the Red Hill Creek Expressway. Should the Red Hill Creek be fixed? Should there be changes to Red Hill Creek? Should there be dividers put up in the middle? Maybe repaving of the road, maybe a redesign, widening of it, all these different things that people were saying, what should we do about Red Hill Creek? What should we do about Red Hill Creek? We've got to make it safer. I'll tell you what we do to make Red Hill Creek safer, along with every other road in this city safer. We expect people to be responsible. And if they aren't responsible, we make them responsible by taking away their privileges. I, I'm looking at this story today, and I don't know what was the motivation. You know, we had a guy on last night, if you'll recall, who was driving his wife to the hospital and she was emitting a baby on the road as they drove along. The baby was coming out of her on the passenger seat in the car. He's driving. He hears a baby crying. There's no baby in the car. There was a baby in her, but suddenly the baby is out. If there was a reason to maybe put your foot to the floor and drive 157 kilometers an hour, that might be it. I would think that might be the one where you say, okay, Still pretty fast, but maybe I could understand that particular circumstance if I was there. If my child is suddenly appearing in a place where that child should not appear, I might drive a little bit over the speed limit. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to honk the horn and just... But short of that, driving 157 on the Red Hill Valley Parkway, which is a speed limit of 90... I can't think of an explanation. I can't think of an excuse. And so we go to the issue of how do we make things safer? Well, I'm telling you the way we make things safer, if you want to put a divider up so people don't cross the median, fine, fine. 
But number one on the list of how you actually make our streets safer is you expect slash demand that people who are using the privilege of driving and the privilege of using that road and the privilege of being behind the wheel of a car behave in a way that they should be. And if they don't, and here's where things seem to get difficult in our society, because we don't like to be too harsh. We don't like to be too harsh. We want to give people more chances. We don't want to come down too hard on people. But if you are going to get behind the wheel of a 2,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 kilogram bullet, whatever, however much a car or a truck weighs these days, I have no idea. I've never weighed one. But let's say it's a 4,000 kilometer bullet. If you're going to get behind the wheel of a 4,000 kilometer an hour bullet and you can't be responsible, why are we, he's getting, according to this, he could get a 2000 to $10,000 fine and a license suspension of, I think, six months. I think that was the, let me see here, a license suspension, pardon me, of up to two years. Even so, what we need to do is to change behavior, not to change roads. I would love for someone to explain to me why it is that if you are caught driving like this or driving drunk or driving in a manner that is putting the public at risk, not for some somehow defendable reason, a.k.a. a baby coming out of your wife in the passenger seat of the car, if you are just doing this, how is it that we don't have stricter, harder, more brutal, honestly, laws that say, you know what, you do this, you get convicted of this, you don't drive again. No two-year thing. Two years, if he's under 18, let's say he's 17, he'll be driving again at 19. Is that, I mean, how punitive is that? How much is that going to stop people? We need to be putting the onus not on city hall or society or something else to fix a road that is highlighted or determined to be difficult because we've had accidents there. We need to put the onus where it should be, which is on people, which is on individuals for their behavior. And this is something that we're picking up a thread if you've been listening the last few nights. And we're not going to talk about garbage again tonight, but we've been talking about individual responsibility, individual behavior. How is it so difficult for us in our society to say, we expect you to behave in a certain way. And if you don't behave in that way, we will have significant enough penalties that if you choose, you don't want to follow them, it's going to hurt. It's not going to be a tap on the wrist. It's going to hurt. You must have responsibility. If you're driving through a drive through restaurant and there's not a garbage pail there, the answer to that is don't make every restaurant have a garbage pail. It's don't throw your garbage on the street right there. Save it till somewhere else. If you're driving in your car and you want to drive really fast, the answer is don't drive really fast. Be responsible. This is not the first time we've heard this, by the way. We've heard over the last number of years in this city, many times people stopped for stunt driving. Many times. I've lost track of how many times we've read stories and heard stories about people who are driving in a way that they should not just have a slap on the wrist, not even just have a, a, a smack on the wrist. 
if you are going to drive, if you're going to behave like this on the road, there should be significant deterrence, as in you never drive again. If you drive drunk, someone explain to me, love to hear you, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Lines are open. I'd love for someone to explain to me, if you get into the car and you have a blood alcohol level, let's say it, even if we set it at one, all right, right now, legal limit is 0.008, but let's say it was, we'll take that up to 0.1. So a little bit more than just the basic amount to be qualified as a drunk driver. If you get into the car at a 0.1, you know you are intoxicated. There could be no confusion about your level of intoxication. If you still get into the behind the wheel of a car, knowing the carnage that can happen, why are we then saying, well, someday you can get your license back? Why are we giving that opportunity? That seems to me to be one of those things where you say, I'm sorry, you're not driving again. It is a privilege. You are given the opportunity to demonstrate responsibility. And if you can't do that, you are not getting that chance again. I don't think this is all that hard. And frankly, I don't think that a lot of people in our society, but maybe for those who drink and drive, they'd probably have something to say about it. But I don't think most people would have a problem with this. If you were to ask 99% of the population, if someone drives 50 kilometers an hour over the speed limit, if someone gets behind the wheel clearly, clearly intoxicated where they're, we've given them even a little bit of a, even though 0.008 is the limit, we'll give them a little bit of leeway before we give them a lifetime suspension. But why should, ask people whether those people should be given a second chance. I bet you if that was to go to a poll, people would say, no, I'm, I'm fine with them never driving again. But we don't like to demand responsibility. We don't like to demand that things, that we are responsible for stuff. We, don't, we want changes to be made to make things as easy as possible for us. We do. We want the city, the province, the country to change things to make it easier for us rather than us just doing what we should do. Give you an example. A few examples. We want now, we've heard this from many, many people, we want voting to be done online. How difficult is it really, unless you're housebound, which I get, but how difficult for everybody but the housebound is it for you to get to a polling station maybe once every two years? I can't imagine it's that you get to the grocery store every week. You get to the corner store, you get to the beer store, you get to the rink, you get to wherever. Surely, if that's the case, you can get to the polling station once every two or four years. Oh, no, it's too inconvenient. I need you to change it so I can vote better. No, that's not what we do. You can get out and vote. That's just one example. We need to drive up the price. We need to have a huge tax on sugary drinks so people are better at their health. Well, do we? Or do we need people to make better decisions and say, you know what, ultimately you're responsible for your health. It's you who has to decide what you put in your body. And we can tax sugary drinks till it's coming out the yin-yang, but I can still go and eat chips or I can still go and have fast food or I can still go and this or that or booze or whatever. It doesn't really change anything. You have to be, it's you, it's us, it's me, it's you, it's everyone. We are responsible for us. Hearing something recently now that says we want to put in restrictions and laws to prevent against fake news. 
All right? That would be lovely. Who determines it? It's not the point. It is up to you and me to be responsible to say, if I read a story that's on Facebook and it's the first thing that popped up on my Facebook screen and you say, holy cow, I hadn't heard that before. That's crazy. Maybe go and take the extra 25 seconds and do a check since you're already online and see if there's anything to validate this or if this is crazy. We are doing all we can to move responsibility away from us and onto other people, from us onto society, from us onto government. We shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be necessarily changing the Red Hill Creek, the whole thing, repaving and putting up this and putting up that when the answer seems right obvious in front of us. Drive properly. Behave properly. And I know that this is an extreme example. Not everybody is driving 157 kilometers an hour, thank goodness. But it's not just speeding. It's swerving in and out of traffic. It's following too closely. It's road rage. It's whatever. I don't understand how this becomes very difficult. If we all were a little more responsible with our own behavior, would that not just solve so many of the problems, including this one? I hope this guy never gets his license back, but you know what? He will. And you won't know it until he's right behind you going 157 kilometers an hour again two years from now. And you're going, that idiot's right on my tail. Yeah, and guess what? He did this two years ago and he's going to get another chance to do it again. That's how the system works right now, which is not how it should work. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Elton John. Great singer. Wonderful singer. Excellent musician. Highly successful has done wonderful things for himself and in the world of music. I like his music. Nothing wrong with Elton John's music. But Elton John has announced that he is retiring from the road. He is no longer going to be touring. Well, wait a second. That's not exactly what he said. <laughs> he said, I'm going to stop touring in three years from now. When So he's 70 now. So when I'm 73, first of all, do you really need to give a three-year lead time announcing your retirement? I mean, even athletes, even pro athletes who want to have the retirement tour so all the other teams and other, all the other cities acknowledge your greatness, even they generally give at most a season. Elton John is giving us a three-year lead time to congratulate him as he travels around. Make sure that every ticket is sold. I mean, that's really what it's about. Nonetheless, I'm not entirely sure, Elton or Mr. John, that we need three years to prepare for your absence. But beyond that, did you catch did you catch why he's stepping away in three years at 73 years old? His priorities have changed and he's now wanting to spend more time with his children. He's going to be 73 years old. It took you until you were 73 to figure out that maybe you want to spend some time with your kids and to have your priorities change? Really? You know, I've always thought that Elton John's a pretty smart guy. He's a slow learner. <laughs> if it takes you until you're 73 to say, you know, I really should probably spend some time at home with my family since I've got young children... He's seven. He's going to be seventy-three years old. I, 
I, I'm listening to this, and again, based on last night's discussion about LeBron James, and I've, I've, I'm coming to this conclusion that celebrities have a hard time getting it. And the level of unbridled narcissism is running rampant. A few months ago, Kobe Bryant, when he retired from the NBA, they were going to retire his number. The Los Angeles Lakers were going to retire his number. But, oh, tricky moment, because Kobe Bryant, over the course of his career, wore two different numbers. Well, if I'm Kobe Bryant, simply retiring one number, like they would do for Magic Johnson or Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky or Babe Ruth, well, that won't do. I'm Kobe Bryant. I need two numbers retired because that's how we do it these days. Yesterday, LeBron James, as I say, congratulating himself because why wait for the mere people to tell me how great I am? I'll tell myself how great I am. I will bow down to myself. He must have a very large mirror to be able to do that. And now we have Elton John at 70 years old, giving us three years lead time on his retirement so we can fully get wrapped up and excited about the going away tour that will last now for three years. Three years. He may be through Hamilton three times before he retires again. He'll tell you, oh, it's our last time through. Well, no, i got another year left. Maybe I'll stop by again. I don't know how many times I'll be in southern Ontario. Well, I'll be here a few times. Because his priorities have changed at 73. Well, when he will be 73. If your priority, here's a question. If you're an average person, just Joe, me, you, anyone listening, Ben on the other side of the glass, and you suddenly have an epiphany that you're getting up there in years. I mean, 70 is not old, but it's not a kid. All right? 70 is the new 50. I just made that up. I don't know if it is or not. Anyway, you're not old. You're not decrepit. But you've decided, I've had an epiphany, and I I think I'm at the point where my priorities are changing. Does the average person, when their priorities change, not say, therefore, as of now, I am doing something different? Who has a priority change three years in advance? (laughs) Who who actually thinks to themselves, you know... I know I've been drinking too much, so three years from now, I'm going to stop. I know I smoke. I know it's not good for me. So three years from now, I'm going to quit cigarettes. I know I'm getting fat, so I'm going to go on a diet in three years because my priorities have changed. You'll excuse me if I come to the conclusion, rather than any priorities changed or rather than anything else, Elton John's ticket sales may be a little soft, and this is simply a way to make sure that as he goes from city to city now, people will say, huh, maybe I better buy an Elton John ticket because he's going to retire in three years. He may be back here twice more, but you better get a ticket because Sir Elton is going to retire. I suspect, however, when 73 rolls around and his kids are now teenagers and they don't need dad in the house, I'm wondering if his priorities might change again. I need to be back on the road. I miss my people. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. The four inductees for the Baseball Hall of Fame were just announced within the last hour. They are Chipper Jones, who got 97.2% of the writing writer's vote. 
Vladimir Guerrero, probably the last Montreal Expo who will ever get in, 92.9%. Jim Tomei, 89.8%, slugging first baseman, mostly for the Cleveland Indians, maybe always. Did he play for any other team? I don't think so. And Trevor Hoffman, the closer for the San Diego Padres, got 79.9% of the vote. Impressive class. But is the Baseball Hall of Fame doing this the right way? Well, joining me, a man who rocked the world this morning with his commentary that said, Baseball Hall of Fame process is broken. Rick Zamperin. Sir. Hello. It's broken? It is busted. (laughs) (laughs) In what way? This is a, uh, it's a, it's a 1980 Yugo that's on the side of the road, not, not necessarily in need of gas, but in need, in need of major repairs. Getting a tow by a Lada. <laughs> <laughs> I can picture it. Here's, here's where I, uh, I, I see the process of the Major League Baseball, or at least the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum voting. Now, they changed the voting rules just a few years ago. 2014 is when they, they made some overhauls. Um, the first one, which I don't really have a huge issue with, <clears throat> is uh, players remain on the ballot for 10 years. That's down from 15. Why I don't have a problem with that is because, even when it was 15 years, after 10 years, <clears throat> they go to the what's called the, the Veterans Committee, or I think they've renamed it the ERA Committee. And they basically are on that list. So picture yourself, Scott Radley, you know, starring center fielder for you know, Team X for, for uh, you know, 15 years in the major leagues. Could happen. You, you, yeah, it could happen. It could still happen. You never know. Uh, it, uh, it, you know, through, through 10 years of voting from the Baseball Writers Association of America, you just don't get the 75% that is necessary for you to be elected into the Hall of Fame. After 10 years' time, the ERA committee, uh, which meets, uh, you know, every year to say, okay, who's going to get in? Uh, you, you're on that list in perpetuity. You are on that list forever so 80 years down the road when this era committee meets they'll say hey remember that scott radley guy hey, we should induct him into the hall of fame he, he had some pretty good numbers i call this the dumb and dumber committee not because they're <laughs> idiots but because of the line so you're saying there's a chance yes exactly so it almost it almost diminishes the value of the baseball writers association of america because for all they do and they, and they do a lot of great things. I mean, they write great articles, they promote players, they can tear players down. You know, they have a lot of power. But after 10 years of keeping someone off uh, that induction platform come come the summer months, uh, they could still be inducted. So the baseball writers have a certain amount of power. So, you know, I don't mind the 10-year thing. Uh, if, if anything, it keeps uh, the conversation going. You know, oh my gosh, you know, Jack Morris wasn't elected in, in, in his 15 years of eligibility. He goes to the Veterans Committee. Okay, now he's going to get in. I think it's a shame that he had to wait that long, but now that brings me to point number two. Well, hold, <clears throat> let me just stop you just before you go to yeah. point two, because sure. the idea behind this, I think, if you and I are singing the same song here, if you're a Hall of Famer, if you're legitimately a Hall of Famer, and they could induct up to 10 players a year, they've never done that, but if you're a Hall of Famer, within 10 years, surely you're going to get those votes, or you're probably not a Hall of Famer. Correct. Um, but it also, after that 10 years, uh, you know, all these other guys getting into the Hall of Fame. So, I mean, do the writers not know anything? Or, you know, it's just, it's just very confusing. I mean, just have a system where, whether you want to cap it at 10 years or not, you know, once that time passes, you know, that's it. You know, if the, if the baseball writers didn't deem you a Hall of Famer within a decade, uh, then you're probably not worthy. 
Yeah. No, and and I I I'm okay with that idea that that you you can have a number of years, and if you're not, and look, there are years when you're going to have someone who comes along and they say he is so much better than everyone else that it doesn't make sense to have other player on the same class with him. But that's rare. More often than not. The fact is, if you can't get in in 10 years, you're probably not really in that category. I mean, plain and simple, because they've never maxed out. They've never gone and said, we just can't simply squeeze another person into the Hall of Fame this year because we've capped it at 10. Right. And that brings me to point number two, and that is that the baseball writers cannot vote for more than 10 players uh, each year. So their, their max vote is 10. They have 10 guys on their list. And that's all fine and well, but when you are... Uh, continuously getting new players on this list, and you're only allowed to say that only these guys are in the top 10 of Hall of Fame-worthy candidates. Year after year after year, those guys who are not in the top 10, even though many of whom are Hall of Fame-worthy, aren't in that top 10 list. For instance, Jack Morris, who I think you know was one of the premier pitchers of the 1980s and, and, and a lot of the 90s as well. So here's a guy who dominated more than a decade on the mound. And some of his numbers may not jump out at you, but he was a big game pitcher. Remember uh, the, that fantastic World Series, I think it was 91, with the Twins and the Braves, in which he went 11 innings and they won the World Series, and it was a phenomenal. And that's just you know a small sample of you know, what kind of pitcher he was. Um, so for 15 years, he did not make, or at least did not get enough top 10 votes to get 75% of the overall list. I think you have to scrap the top 10 thing. I think you give baseball writers the opportunity to say, all right, here's my, here's my Hall of Fame worthy players. You know, I'm not going to vote for anybody else, but here's the guys who I think should be in the Hall of Fame. And whether that's three guys or whether that's 18 guys, I mean, if you, if you can make a case for 18 players or 11 or whatever, whatever the number is, that these guys should be in the Hall of Fame and most of the other baseball writers agree, I think they should get in. But in the time that Jack Morris didn't get in, in those 15 years, there were lots of times that the class was one player, two players, three players. Like, there were opportunities. So they could have voted Jack Morris in. They could have found a way to put him in if they had wanted to, but they chose not to. They said he was not that guy. And I've never quite understood the Veterans Committee thing because to me it seems like it's a consolation prize somehow. I'm sure the players who get in via that way don't feel that. Uh, But here's what I love about baseball's Hall of Fame, and you and I may differ on this a little. I think the fact that it is so impossible almost to get into makes it special as opposed to some others, like say the NFL in Canton, Ohio, where every year the class is enormous and you forget half the people who have gone in. I think the massive exclusivity and the incredible difficulty to get in makes it the best Hall of Fame out there. Uh, I agree it is the best Hall of Fame because it is the hardest to get into. But, you know, I was looking at the list, and there's 319 inductees. Well, now there's 323 with, with today's four. But of those 323, I'm going through this, I'm thinking, I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. I, I could not point to one guy to say, you know what, that was a mistake. He, he doesn't deserve to be in there. I think you can make a case for a lot of the players, even who have been overlooked, that you could say, yeah, you know what, they, they should have been in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, a guy like Joe Carter, who uh, you know was quickly dropped. Uh, Carlos Delgado, 
another example. You know, two former Blue Jays who maybe not the best of the best even in their era, but certainly I would think in the upper echelon of, of Major League Baseball players. Now, whether they were Hall of Fame worthy or not, I think uh, I'm not sure they should have been dropped on the ballot that quickly, but uh, you know, I, uh, they they would get my vote for sure. See, there's there, to me there's differences. The, the again, the Football Hall of Fame, the the NFL Hall of Fame. There's so many guys. Uh, honestly, Rick, if I said to you who was in last year's class, maybe you could come up with one or two, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when I watched the movie Concussion, uh, the one with Will Smith about the NFL concussion crisis and the doctor out of Pittsburgh who discovered the connection with CTE. Anyone who's seen this movie knows the start of the movie, and I'm, dr- I'm drawing a blank on his name. Was it Mike Webster? Mike, um, yes, the center, the center who had horrendous CTE. He kind of launched this whole thing. Would you have known Mike Webster was in the Football Hall of Fame? No, not a clue. I would not have had a clue that he was in there because so many guys get in there. In the Hockey Hall of Fame, they've gotten tighter in recent years for sure, but a lot of guys have gone into the Hockey Hall of Fame who you've said, okay, they were pretty good. But you don't say, well, they were the absolute elite of all elite. Baseball, man, you go, you walk in that hall at Cooperstown, and there, as you say, there's nobody, Rick, that is not, he was the best. He was the yeah. best I ever saw. Well, here's, here, here's some of the names that are coming up for future, you know, future first-year eligible players. I did a little research uh, earlier today and, and yesterday. Uh, next year, Mariano Rivera, Roy Halladay, Todd Helton, Andy Pettit, Miguel Tejada, Vernon Wells. Now, the latter two probably have no shot, but certainly the first four will probably get in. Uh, in 2020, Derek Jeter, Bobby Abreu, Jason Giambi, Cliff Lee, and it'll be the 10th year for Larry Walker. So that'll be his deadline in 2020. And only only uh, Derek Jeter will get in out of that crew. Exactly, yes. 2021, this is a soft year. Tim Hudson, Mark Burley, Torrey Hunter are your top three candidates. Zero. And in 2022, this might be one of the most contentious years because not only do you have Alex Rodriguez, Ooh. David Ortiz, Ooh. Mark Teixeira, Ooh. Canadian Justin Morneau, Prince Fielder, who I just tossed in because I like saying his name, <laughs> but it's also the 10th year for Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Kurt Schilling, and Sammy Sosa. So you have Bonds, Clemens, Schilling, uh, Schilling and Sosa, as well as A-Rod, all guys tied to the steroids era, big time. Uh, on the same ballot at the same time in 2022. Was Schilling tied into the steroid era? Well, I think there was... I don't remember him being connected. See, the thing with Schilling... Okay, so I want to ask you about that in a second, because that's another thing. Schilling has not made it in and didn't really make up any ground, and Schilling is an interesting case because he's a guy that at the end of his career, a lot of people said, no problem, guaranteed he's going to make it in, and became politically active and took some positions that some people did not love and the writers were not real fans of, and his support has dropped. And I'm thinking, wait a second, now this is another problem because I think you're supposed to get in for what you do on the field, not for what your political or social or philosophical positions are. And if a writer doesn't like you as a person, that really shouldn't have any impact on whether or not you were a good baseball player. Mm -hmm. But that's what's happened, it looks like. Without a doubt, and this goes to the uh, the Albert Bell scenario too. Here's a guy who was, you know, a 30, 40 homer, 100, 120 RBI guy, year after year after year after year with with the Cleveland Indians. Uh, he just PO'd enough reporters not to get into Cooperstown. Ty Cobb's another one, a guy who was just a, an outright racist, was one of the best players in the history of the ball game, 
but off the field, uh, you know, in that era, of course, in the early 1900s, was just a miserable human being. And he was a bit of that on the field as well. And another guy we can point to for off-field shenanigans, if you will, and this is a little bit of a different circumstance, is Pete Rose. Obviously, he's been suspended by Major League Baseball, and he may never get into the Hall of Fame. But, uh, you know, certain circumstances off the field certainly do impact the player's eligibility. Yeah, and his is different because even though yeah. it was off the field as a player, it was still on the field he as a manager. Manage so yeah. he was still involved in the game. And people have actually suggested at times that Ty Cobb be taken out of the Hall of Fame, yes. which seems, again, kind of ridiculous. You're either in there because of what you did or you're not. But we've got a couple of minutes left here. Mm-hmm. The most contentious ones, and this came up today, and I can't remember if they actually gained ground, held fast or whatever, Roger Clemens, 57.3%. Barry Bonds, 56.4%. It would appear, based on those numbers, that the writers who voted for one voted for the other. It it looks like that's probably your group of 57%, roughly, of writers who have said, you know what, let's put him in. And I still take the position that I don't want guys who knowingly were using steroids, even if it was before baseball tested, but other people have taken a different opinion. What is your thought on the guys who are tied into this, whether they should be going in? Well, first off, the two guys that you mentioned, Bonds and Clemens, they did marginally go up again this year, but this is the smallest increase uh, that they've seen since they've entered the ballot system. So they're still going up, but not uh, by as much. And they still need 20% more, because you've got to get 75% of the votes. Basically, yeah, in the next four years, they they need another 20%. Um, I, I'm on. I take the position that you know these were phenomenal baseball players, hundred percent. But at one point in time, they made the decision to take that leap to get an extra edge on players who we have no idea whether they were, were using or not. I'm talking about the other players because you know we've heard from Jose Canseco that you know ninety percent of you know Major League Baseball players were on the juice. I don't buy into that. I do buy into the fact that. Bonds and Clemens and Kenseiko and guys like Sammy Sosa, Rafael Palmero, another name, A-Rod's admitted to it, Andy Pettit as well. <clears throat> guys were taking things knowing that it was not necessarily against the rules at one particular point, but it, it, it at least was frowned upon. And uh, in, in many cases, you know, players uh, would not, uh, you know, even entertain the thought of, of doing that. But guys like Bonds said, hey, I want to get an edge. I want to be the best of all time. I'm going to go this route, and I consider them cheaters because I think they cheated the system. And I think not necessarily did they cheat the fans because, hey, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, back in the day when they were breaking the home run record, I mean, that was phenomenal drama. But at the end of the day, they were cheating. If you have to go to a find a veterinarian in Tijuana to get you some horse tranquilizers to inject <laughs> into your butt, Chances are you have some inkling that what you're putting into your body is not really allowed. I, I, yeah. I again to me, the baseball wasn't testing, and some people have argued that well because it wasn't really against the rules, and mm-hmm. because other guys were taking greenies and amphetamines and all these things, you know, Babe Ruth was drinking, other guys were doing. I'm looking at this thing. Is there anybody who has ever injected steroids into his butt and not thought I'm doing something a little? Sneaky, because right. if they thought there was nothing wrong with it, why would they in in a dressing room where guys walk around naked all the time? There's no hiding stuff. It's not like showing your butt cheek is going to offend somebody. Why would you never hear of anybody injecting this stuff in right in front of their stall with their teammates around? And we've never heard of that. 
Yeah, and you know what? There's there's so much. Uh, you know, the, the, they had a, a, a great book. I don't remember the name of it right now. Um, where they basically had calendars and the cream and the clear and Balco was involved. And there's there's so much smoke and fire that uh, you know the the only thing that we don't have is Bonds admitting to it or Clemens admitting to it, and uh, Bonds's trainer who went to jail at one point you know, uh, admitting that, you know, this had happened. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, these guys had Hall of Fame-worthy careers on the field, but that tainted aspect to it, uh, I just, uh, I can't buy into Well, and the one other thing, both of these guys, the stories we've heard, and I don't know if they're true, because these are the stories that have come out of clubhouses or from their, as you say, their trainers or teammates or whomever, said they, and other people have argued, they were Hall of Fame players before we be, we believe that they began taking this stuff. Mm-hmm. And my answer to that then is, so if you were fading or if you weren't where you wanted to be and you decided this would give you an edge, this would be putting something in your body that would make you a better player, does that, that not by its definition show that you understood you were doing something to give you an edge that probably shouldn't have been there? It was not a natural thing that you were doing. I, I don't, when I hear that argument, I think, no, you're arguing against the point. If you yeah. put this in thinking this will extend my career, make me better, make me stronger right there, you've said it's cheating. It's doing something that I'm not supposed to have. Yeah. The one thing I've always been interested in and we're never going to see it is what would their numbers be if they didn't use performance enhancing drugs? I think the numbers would be vastly different, but I'm not sure in their mind it would be that catastrophically adverse to what they ended up with. The guy, uh, even, I, yeah, Rick, even more than those two guys, the guy that I would love to see that, and it's a great point, the guy I would love to see is A-Rod because he was already hitting record home runs for a shortstop. Yeah. And to me, of all the guys involved in this, he was the guy who least needed to take this stuff to become what he eventually was because he was already doing it. And I, to me, that's the biggest shame of the bunch. He was the guy who squandered the most because he was the guy who needed it the least. Anyway, uh, I don't know if we're going to see A-Rod in either, by the way. That will be another, I, I, I guess, I'm guessing no. I would have to believe no, but, you know, he's, he is having, he is doing the one thing that Clemens and Bonds never did. He's now on TV and he is resuscitating his career in a sense and making himself a likable character with his work on TV. Maybe enough people watch him and think, ah, A-Rod's kind of funny. A-Rod's kind of a good guy. Maybe that buys him some votes. I don't know if it will or not. Yeah. My recommendation is stay off Twitter and don't get political. (laughs) And do not inject, and and do not inject any horse tranquilizers from Tijuana into your butt cheek. And that goes for everybody. Even if you're a computer programmer, you don't need the horse tranquilizers. I don't think. I don't think. Rick Zamperin, not on horse tranquilizers. Thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. You can read Rick's piece. Again, it's uh, find it on Twitter. Find it at the 900CHML.com website. Baseball Hall of Fame process is broken. Interesting. I think they got the right players this year for the most part, but it's still an interesting debate that Rick brings up about whether this should be done differently. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.